My name is Josh Zeman. I'm a filmmaker, director of uh, The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52. My favorite non-human animal uh, right now has to be my own dog, Zoe. I'm sorry that is, that's like not the best answer, but I love her. So, you know, I can't help it. Welcome to Scanna, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. I'm Mark Lern-Young, author of three books about orcas, including The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. That whale was Moby Doll, the first orca displayed in captivity. And today, it's my pleasure to be talking about another whale who made major waves, the whale who became known as the loneliest whale in the world. Josh Zeman was mostly telling true crime stories when he decided to approach one of the world's great modern mysteries and join the hunt for the 52 Hertz Whale. He directed the movie The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52, which doesn't just cover the quest to find 52, a whale who seemed to be calling out for a family with sounds that wouldn't connect with any other whales, but also the story of why this whale's search touched the hearts of so many humans. As always, Scan exists because of the generous support of our Patreon patrons. So if you like what we're doing and want to hear more amazing ocean stories, please support us at patreon.com. Our patrons do get all sorts of cool perks, including sneak peeks at ocean-related projects like our upcoming documentary version of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, and my two new books about sharks that are due out this fall. So stay tuned for Sharks Forever, available for advance order now. You can also check out our new podcast, Orca Bites, for shorter bite-sized pieces about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment. And now, director Josh Zeman on lonely whales, lonely humans, and switching from true crime stories to undersea mysteries. Fantastic. So how are you? Where are you? Uh, I'm in Connecticut. Uh, I'm very good. Uh, interestingly enough, I just got back from Nantucket uh, to show the film, uh, you know, The Loneliest Whale in Nantucket. So that was a very interesting experience, kind of seeing the whale movie in that kind of uh, community. Now, I was dying to ask about that because I, I get that a casual person may not realize what a big deal it is to show this in Nantucket but I think it's pretty darn cool. So could you talk about showing it there and how that went? Yeah, I mean, you know, I had been to Nantucket working on a reproduction of an 18th century schooner when I was a kid. And now to like go back there full circle 35 years later to show a film about whales. And, you know, it's really interesting. I, we also went to New Bedford. And, you know, you may think that these places that were so a, a, a part of of hunting whales 
you know, maybe negative, but they're actually some of the smartest people about whales and they appreciate whales in a way that others don't and they have a natural affinity and respect. It's really interesting, kind of weird, but but you get it. So like I actually find that those are the people who have the strongest connections to stories about whales, especially ones about like quests to go out and find singular whales and obsessions and things like that. Now, you you mentioned my shirt. Did you see these there? This is a blue whale. No, I did not. What is that one? This is actually this is actually from their whaling museum. I ordered it. Oh yeah, yeah, yes. Which is yes, it's a great it's a great one in such rich history and and I love that one in New Bedford. I mean, it was so cool. We went we got to go into the New Bedford um museum and that's where we found Dr. Watkins' old equipment that he had used. We actually got to film the equipment that he used to actually when he first heard of 52. And so that was super fascinating. That is so cool. Can you talk about being on a whale watching boat at 14? That's awesome. It was out of Boston Harbor. I had went on vacation and my parents, I think, were like looking from to like ship me off for the uh, for the year or for, you know, for the summer. And they're like, would you like to work on a boat? And I was like, yeah, I would love to. So like next summer, literally like two years before they mass, they they dropped me off on this. It's a schooner, you know, like a reproduction of a schooner. Uh, that theoretically would have been out on off Gloucester, and it's a you know it's a it's a schooner that would probably go out uh, for weeks at a time into the Great Banks to fish, you know, and then then put everything in their hold and then come back. And so it was a reproduction of that. We took people on whale watching tours, and as a fourteen year old midshipman, it was amazing. It was amazing to like sleep in the gal you sleep in the you know place and and stay up on go to watch you know i was 14 years old and somebody's like okay you can't fall asleep here's some whiskey and here's some cigarettes <laughs> and i was 14 and and then as like a hazing thing they would be like all right go up to the top of the mask and unfurl the flag um and i would go up there and the and the and the boat would be moving like 35, 40 feet, and you're 115 feet up in the air. I still can't believe, from like insurance purposes, like they let a 14 year old kid climb the mast while the ship is in motion without any harness or anything. It just blows my mind. I was like, how do we get away with that? You know? So it's very fun. That's kind of yeah. awesome. Is that boat still there? That boat is still around, the Harvey Gamage, yes. And, and it was one of those just like, my parents didn't really know what they were doing. I think they just, you know, it was this or like Jewish sleepaway camp, you know, and I have to pick, I happen to pick this, you know, and so it just became this lifelong thing. I think you did way better going on a whaling ship than you would have at a Hatik bar or something like that. And, just... and like the, you know, it was all popular with like 18 year old, 20 year old, like, you know, first mates and stuff like that. So they had to like take us with them when they would go to like Provincetown or Nantucket and they would go drink, right? So they would go to the bar and they would plop like the 14 year old kid in the corner and they're like, okay, you, and so they get, you speak to this old ship drunk <laughs> while we're gonna go hang out. And so, you know, you would, some guy would be like, all right, what do you know? You know, it's like an old captain, you know, and, and you would just learn the history from these like old drunks, it was great. What kind of whales did you see? Well, we were out in the Great Banks, so we saw, you know, pretty much everything. We saw humpbacks and, you know, minkies and everything. It was great. Fins, of course, you know. That's so cool. Can you talk about 
did you stay interested in whales after that or did this just reconnect when you heard about blue things I had, you do? yeah you know after that i had kind of like many people wanted to grow up becoming a marine biologist it didn't happen i ended up becoming a journalist and then i had always been interested in whales i had done a, a pretty big detour into true crime uh and kind of urban legends and then the legend of 52 kind of came up in my life and i was like okay you know i needed a palate cleanser from true crime and here is a beautiful kind of legend about you know the 52 hertz whale the loneliest whale in the world and was this whale really lonely is it called out through the oceans and the fact that it was connected to like the u.s navy and top secret programs it was such a cool story that intersected science and legend and you know naval stuff and it was just a super fascinating journey can you talk about how you got hooked when you heard the story and yep. when you went yep this is mine uh, uh -huh. mine you know i'd been through a breakup and somebody had told me about the story of the loneliest whale and i was like oh my god and i went and that's when i read andy Revkin's article um about this whale and what was really interesting was in the original paper that Watkins and the others had done, they try and be really scientific about it. But there's one line right at the end where like suddenly these scientists can't help but like break the science. And they're like, what does it mean that this one whale is swimming throughout the oceans calling out? And it's like, it's buried in the middle of this scientific paper. And you're like, aha. You know, it even gets them too. And from there, I started to ask people about this story. I was like, I was like, hey, have you ever heard this story about this lonely whale that calls out at this frequency and no other whale can understand? It's been swimming through the oceans trying to get a response. And I'm a storyteller. I pitch a lot of stories. And I've never seen a reaction that I've seen that people had to this story. Like they would start to cry or they would get goosebumps. And I was like, what is it? about this story that makes people react the way that they do. And that sent me down this rabbit hole of both like loneliness and then using animals as a mirror for our own selves, anthropomorphizing, how we anthropomorphize animals. But it's one thing that, that, that the idea of loneliness and, and being alone and calling out and never receiving responses, man's existential crisis. But when that crisis is then put in this metaphor of this whale, it suddenly takes on a whole new, wickedly powerful Jungian thing. Because whales, if you've ever seen them, you know, and that's a big thing, talking to people about seeing whales, and the first time they see whales, it's also that same exact response. They suddenly are humbled in the experience of seeing a whale for the first time. And so it basically takes us out of our, you know, self-centered human space and, and makes us kind of we're puny, basically. Uh, in, and so we're humbled in the presence of a whale like I was as a kid. And then the idea that whales, it gets into the ideas of whales as mystical, you know, spiritual creatures, sentient creatures, creatures that are otherworldly. And then the idea of, of whales being in this vastness of the ocean and really trying to get the human brain to comprehend the vastness of the ocean, which, you know, basically our brains will explode if we're really going to understand the vastness of the human ocean. So it's the existential man's human crisis 
in this unbelievable container of a whale and all of and what that means, quests, Moby Dick, everything that makes this story have such resonant power. And then like that was the entree point in that was like, OK, I am so in this story to understand this, why we're connected. And then I find out like sound in the ocean is the coolest thing in the world and totally like mysterious. And there's so many mysteries in the ocean. And I'm like, OK, not only like is it a brain teaser and, and like a cool like story, but like there's a mystery here for us to solve. Like we could get in here and do my normal, you know, demystifying, you know, urban legend thing. Now you hit so many things I want to ask you about there, but one of those is a question I try and ask everybody I talk to. Do you remember the first time you saw a whale? Of course. And, and for me, I was up on top of a 115 foot mast swinging back and forth like a pendulum 15 to like 20 feet. And I was scared. Out, I was scared out of my mind. Like, you know, you know, when you start to shake because you're so scared. And then suddenly this whale comes up next to the side of the boat. And I had forgotten about being scared. I was no longer scared because I, I was in awe of this creature that was as big as the size of this 115 foot ship. And and the thing was, is everybody down the deck, like they can't, you know, when you see whales on a whale watching ship, like you see the mouth come up, you, you kind of just like, oh, I'm not quite sure as to what it looks like the rest of the water. When you're 15, 115 feet up, you see exactly what it's like. And that's why those drone shots in the film are so cool, because you see whales in all of their, their, their full frame glory. And you're like, aha. Now I understand. And so that, that was the most free. And that was a question I asked everybody. I said, uh, you know, do you remember the first time you saw a whale? Because it's that, it's that moment of awe. And it's almost like, do you remember the first time you heard about the loneliest whale story? Yeah, very cool. And what, what, from the size that it sounds like, was that a blue whale? Uh, at the time, yes. So? Yes, at the time it was, yeah. Wow. I would love to see a blue, or uh, living out on this coast, I've seen... A lot of orcas, humpbacks, and one minke, yeah. but never the really You're on the West Coast. big ones. Yeah, I'm in Victoria. Okay, great. Yeah. So Vancouver, Victoria, spent a fair bit of time living in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. But those nice big whales, yeah, they're on your side. Yeah, that's true. For the most part. It's unbelievable. Uh, what were some of your favorite responses when you asked people about, about Blue 52 and the first time they heard that story? Because I remember reading that story and going, this is awesome. I think like a hundred people sent me that story. Yeah. You know, it was, it was interesting. Like I had people cry, you know, and it was just like, and I understood it, but I was just like, wow, the, the sheer power of this story was very interesting. Number one, but then it was like cool to see people kind of add all these different stories, depending on where they were in their own idea, understanding of loneliness, uh, which is, opens up a whole nother totally different debate, right? Loneliness, aloneness you know and then like the other thing is is like if it's one place that you're going to go where you can translate loneliness to aloneness to aloneness so basically from almost like a negative to a positive an affliction to a confidence it's the ocean you know if it's you know sailors they 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 found ways to interpret loneliness in alone in aloneness that is really powerful. You know, some people Walden does it with you know uh, forests and things like that, but 
There's something really fascinating about the ocean and the power, the transformative power of the ocean to, to make us appreciate loneliness for aloneness. I thought it was really fascinating that you also turned this into a meditation on loneliness. Can you talk about that decision and how you went there? I mean, it was really interesting. You know, I, I that was part of it. You know, I didn't know. I was always trying to find out why this story was so resonant at the time that it was. And that was when we started to hear these debates about loneliness. Are we in an epidemic of loneliness? And yes, we are in an epidemic of loneliness. But I was like, I was taking the metaphor of the lonely whale swimming through the oceans, calling out in this vast, dark space, sending out electronic signals thousands of miles away, hoping for a response. I was taking that metaphor of this of its social networks to our social networks. And there was a lot of articles coming out about, like, is Facebook making us lonely? Is the social media creating, you know, FOMO and all these other ideas? And so I was trying to figure out was our connection and our empathy for the 52 hertz whale based upon our reconciliation with social media at the time and what we found and was social media making us more lonely and therefore this creature became a kind of an outwardly expression of that loneliness and and sciences have found out that no you know we're not social media technically isn't making us more lonely it might be doing other things but it might it's probably not making us more lonely uh, but then that that became a meditation on loneliness and aloneness and, and being out on the ocean, what that does to you in your understanding of loneliness and aloneness. And, and how could you not, you know, before I was, we were, the film was much more about loneliness and people were like, oh God, that's such a bummer. Like, it's a good film, but it's a bummer, you know? And they're like, can you make it more exciting? And I was like, I was like, you know what? We're going to make the happiest goddamn movie about loneliness that you've ever seen. <laughs> nice. Can you explain the 52 Hertz concept? Yeah. So there is a whale that calls out at a frequency of 52 Hertz. Most low frequency whales call out depending, uh, 10 to 15 blue whales, fin whales are calling out at low frequencies. Humpbacks, of course, the singing whales that you hear calling out at much higher frequency. Um, it is believed that there is some problem with this whale that calls out at 52. The reason they know it calls out at 52 is because uh, for about 50 years, we've had these um, we have this thing called the SOSIS, which is an underwater system of hydrophones, listening devices throughout the entire oceans of the world where we're supposed to be listening to submarines and things like that during the Cold War when that fell, when we didn't need to listen to, to, to Russians for a while. We used it to listen and measure whale populations first their song. That's where they first heard this 52 hertz sound. They didn't know what it was. Eventually, Dr. Watkins from Hui decides it's a whale. But they're like, but really, how can it be a whale? We know most frequency whales, you know, low frequency call out between 10 and 15. And he's like, no, we think it's a whale based upon how it comes back every year, the way in which the sound travels. And they're like, you sure it's not a submarine? And they thought it was a submarine at first. Like, no, we think it's a whale. So they've heard the sound. Um, and then when we stopped allowing scientists to listen for the sound, we no longer were, were could track it anymore. And it is believed that it is either the first of its kind, the last of its kind, or an anomaly, some kind of problem, you know, with it, with its, with its vocal cords or something to that, or a hybrid whale, a cross between a blue and a fin. 
that was actually the big surprise for me. And maybe it just hadn't registered for me when I read various stories was that this was a hybrid whale. And I, I mean, I, my thing is orcas and the different orca populations have not interbred in 700,000 years. Right. So the idea that of a blue and a fin getting it on seems kind of shocking. Do you know anything about right. how that's supposed to have happened? Well, so here's the thing. It, a lot of it has to do with rebounding stocks. Okay. So when you, you know, obviously both of those whales species were decimated, you know, and now that those species are coming back and coming back fairly quickly, you now have overlapping stocks populations that are suddenly bumping up against each other. And maybe, you know, it's, it's, you don't know that they're not your other side. You know what I'm saying? Or, you know, it's just, you know, it's a free for all and, and who knows what happens. I think with orcas, because they're they're actually so highly, highly socialized uh, and that I think maybe there might be a difference in allowing groups and pods to go there versus, um, versus the ways in which uh, fins and blues interact, because there can be uh, pairs or single mates roaming around where orcas really aren't like that, from what I can assume. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm um, because I've heard about narwhals and belugas hanging out, yeah. but they don't seem to breed with each other. They just yeah. seem to hang out. I I I, we, I think they say it is because of 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 rebounding stocks. So it's actually a good thing. Fascinating. That's very cool. Now, can I check your IMDb listing and nothing in it indicates that this is your obvious choice. <laughs> Can you talk about your sort of history of movie making and how you went, yep, I got to do this. Yeah. And then how you sold people on it. What, what'd you say? And then how you sold people on it. Well, how you got people to buy and go, I'm the guy. Yeah. You know, that's a good question. You know, I, I, I had produced movies for many years and, and then I started to do documentaries, but mostly true crime and spent a lot of time doing true crime, but then, you know, you need a palate cleanser, but then, as I was saying, you know, this story is a mystery, you know, and 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 the hunt to find him is a bit of a thriller. Uh, so it is somewhat in the in in the wheelhouse and demystifying whether it's really lonely or not, and going after this kind of impossible mission to kind of find this whale. So it is a little bit in that wheelhouse in terms of legends and mysteries and things like that. Yet at the same time, I, I think and I hope that science mysteries are going to start to kind of come in and overtake true crime a little bit, you know, and, and I think we're going to see a shift. I'd love that. Yeah, I think we're going to see a shift there uh, of science mysteries kind of taking over a little bit. And I think that's a well, a welcome shift and, and, and one we really need in this society and in this culture of uh, storytelling. And I think, you know, we need to be better science storytellers. Um, Absolutely. And so I really welcome that. As for whether I was the guy, I think I was just the, the craziest guy willing to, you know, commit to telling this story for 10 years and kind of not and not shying away when the cards were down. That's all. It's just it was more tenacity than anything. But I mean, you, this was also one of the bigger hits on Kickstarter. Yeah. Can you talk about how that how that caught fire there? Yeah, you know, Making the film, we brought in Adrian Grenier, a really smart guy, and especially very uh, smart in understanding the metaphor of the loneliest whale and the power of that 
um, character in terms of uh, he has a foundation or an organization that does really well in terms of ocean stewardship. And so he's really understands that we brought him in and then DiCaprio came in and, you know, we were going to make this film with like, you know, some rich investors and then that didn't happen. And then, you know, we ended up relying on Kickstarter, but I think at the end of the day, it became a much cooler quest. It was a very indie quest, but at the same time, like that, it created a different story and it created a story that fell almost everybody, you know, it, it, the, the proof here is that anybody could go on a quest. The proof here is that anybody could go out there and, and do science and, and discover a mystery. And, you know, it doesn't need to be some crazy IMAX Nat Geo thing. You know, you have to have a good story, a good science story. And from that, you could convince people to join you. I mean, this was not Nat Geo. This was not IMAX. This was, you know... 3,300 people who decided to get together and cared enough about a story that they got together, they pooled their money and they said, okay, let's go do this. The amazing thing is from that, Adrian started his Lonely Whale organization. That The long tail of that organization has had a dramatic effect on ocean stewardship, whether it's the Save Stop Sucking campaign or things like that. I don't even know if the Kickstarter people know that the profound effect that they had in not just doing this movie, but in setting that organization up and then the effect that that organization has had on ocean stewardship. It's crazy. I don't recall hearing about the Kickstarter, but I've been subscribed to the Loneliest Whale Foundation since it launched. Yeah, there you go. You know, exactly. So there you go, right? So one fed the other and, and the Lonely Whale, I mean, they're doing good stuff, you know, and it's impressive. You know, it's, you know, you can knock the, the celebrity thing. I don't. I was like, this is exactly what we need to make people care and to actually create change. Well, it's funny because you talk about your experience making thrillers. And when you introduced your crew, I thought this has a real Ocean's Eleven <laughs> thriller vibe to it. <laughs> it was like getting the gang together. It's like the safe cracker and, and everything like that. And we talked about that. You know, it's funny because the editors would be like, well, we want to do it like this. I was like, I know, but it can't be cheesy. And they're like, no, it's not going to be. And it like, it was like, okay, this is really cool. <laughs> you know, like, because it really was like that. Like some guy shows up in the parking lot and it's like, this is John Klebikidis and his, you know, he's got his like ribbed hole inflatable that he like is like military grade. And then there's the other guy who's like, oh yeah, we got this box of Sona buoys from the government that they don't want anymore that used to, you know, used to hunt submarines that we're using to find a whale and i was like this is nuts <laughs> very cool yeah i just thought that that was really playful and it was a little wild looking up and going your other project right now is son of sam <laughs> yeah yeah i know that's a little nuts well it's funny because yeah uh there's a whale researcher person who wrote an amazing whale book out in the west coast david nywart and his other gig is writing about sort of neo-nazi fascist organizations he's like now i'm just going to talk about whales yeah. and there's a woman who did an amazing book about sharks whose other whose day job is writing about politicians in washington so yeah it's it's cool because like whales is like the whales or marine mammal life is like the best palate cleanser ever <laughs> You know, just when you think you've had too much devil worshipping and serial killers, you go and you spend a day, you know, working on whales and everything's okay again. 
Very cool. So what do you tell people that we need to do to help out the whales? Education. You know, for me, I had no idea about the extent of shipping around the world. I had no idea it was what it was. Um, and so I think we, when we talk about it, the first steps is, hey, understand what your consumerism does. And, and the coolest thing is you control that. Like you can decide to buy or not to buy. Um, and you can, you can decide to kind of to manage your own consumerism. So first understanding, hey, 90% of everything we purchase comes over a ship. Okay, educate yourself. Those ships are huge, you know, and then understand ocean noise pollution. I had no idea what it was before we started. Now I completely get it. It's super fascinating. And then I think just understanding that we have an effect upon these creatures and also understanding it's like the connection is so important. Like I had no idea. And I spoke about this with Roger Payne, the guy who basically recorded songs of the humpback whale, you know, Roger Payne didn't know when he was putting this album out that the whole world would drop acid and listen to his album, you know, and suddenly be like, oh my God, what, what creatures make this sound that is so incredible. And then from that, Greenpeace and the Save the Whales movement starts. And from, from that Greenpeace and from that, the, the green movement of today, which is the same movement that we need to incorporate if we're going to fight climate change and literally survive. So it becomes this unbelievable thread from Songs of the Humpback Whale to the green movement and climate change issues of today. And when then you realize like, holy shit, this is all so friggin' interconnected. You better pay attention, you know, and understand like what it all means. Because like, this is the future and this is like, yes, we could go on living your lives every day, you know, finding your next cheeseburger, but you know, this is really important stuff. And so I think just educating yourself in that world, realizing it's all interconnected and then go out on a boat. I don't care what you do with your life. Go out on a boat once. Go out whale watching once. Then come back and talk to me. And then we can talk about what you want to do with the rest of your life. Very cool. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, thank you for making this movie. And good luck with it. And thanks for, uh, thanks for spreading the word. Much appreciated. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss our upcoming interviews with some of the world's top shark experts. If you want to help us share more stories about oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join our pod at patreon.com. Your support makes this possible. It helps us pay for the tech and the humans required to make this happen. And the more support we have, the more stories we can tell. So please visit us at patreon.com backslash Scanna. I'd like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Nancy Campbell, Simon McNair, Robert Anderson, Darren Lern Young, Kayla, Susie Venuta, Glenda McFarlane, Solomon Siegel, Howie Siegel, and Yosef Wask. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, Orcas of the Sailor Sea, Big Whales, Small World, and Orcas Everywhere, as well as my two new shark books, Sharks Forever 
and Big Shark's Small World coming soon to a bookstore near you. A special thanks to our friends at Eagle Wing Whale and Wildlife Tours, Canada's first 100% carbon neutral whale watching company and the first to support the 1% for the Planet initiative. You can find Eagle Wing at Fisherman's Wharf in Victoria. Be sure to check out our show notes at scanna.org and subscribe to our Scanna magazine on Medium. It now features material from several of our guests, including Alexander Morton, Paul Watson, and Julia Barnes. Follow us on social media and share the show with your friends. Heck, share it with everyone you know. Share it with strangers. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. If this podcast didn't work for you, I'm Martha Stewart, and this is Martha Stewart's Podcast. Scanna is produced in Saanich, B.C., territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. By the always awesome Ray Manu, our brilliant new audio boss is Bug Lewis, the Scanna site, and so much more, courtesy of our Wizard of Web, Katie Brown. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Oh, <laughs>